Marketing can be an incredible force for good. It can also be complicated and confusing. I'm your host, Erica Mills Barnhart, and my goal with this podcast is to bring clarity to the marketing chaos for you. You'll learn inspiring yet practical ways to think about marketing differently so you can do marketing differently and get better results with less stress and more joy for you and your team. Motivation is for the mind and inspiration is for the heart. Marketing for good takes both. Welcome to a whole new way of thinking and doing marketing. Welcome to Marketing for Good. Hi there, it's Erica. This is a little fair warning before we leap into today's episode. It's an interview, a chat with me and Hanson Hussein. I adore Hanson because he makes me think so differently about marketing. Sure, but that's like the tip of the iceberg with him. He, he just thinks about everything differently. He's a former war correspondent. That might have something to do with it. So he's a journalist by training. And that, that really comes out in how he thinks about things. Just, you know, technology is disruptive yet supportive. This conversation goes a whole bunch of places. There are absolutely times where you're going to hear me sort of like pause because I'm thinking, well, okay, like I don't even know how to respond to that. I've never thought of it that way. And that's why I think it's so cool. So I'm really, 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 really excited for you to listen to this episode. And reminder, if this sparks something for you and you want to talk to other people who believe in marketing for good, join the Marketing for Good Facebook group. We're there. We can talk about it. Whatever this sparks for you, I really encourage you, welcome you, invite you to join that Facebook group. And now, without further ado... Let's jump into the episode so you can get your mind blown by Hanson. So Hanson is co-director of the Communication Leadership Master's Program at the University of Washington and the president of HRH Media Group, LLC, a media production and communication strategy firm that has worked with organizations such as REI, Microsoft, Tableau, Software, and the King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office. He's a pioneer of multimedia storytelling as an Emmy and Overseas Press Club award-winning journalist for NBC News, a solo TV war correspondent with MSNBC and CBC, and a documentary film director whose work has been streamed and broadcast worldwide. While at UW, Hansen has also been recognized as Seattle's most influential as he engages publicly with the region's leaders on camera and on stage. He has a law degree from McGill University and the University of Paris and a master's in journalism from Columbia University. Okay, so that's, so that's the official. Isn't it great when you can write your own story, Erica? <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, so what I came across, so I went back and I read the article about you when you won Seattle Magazine's Most Influential Award. And you said, I love Seattle because I feel like I have the freedom and independence to tell my own narrative. And I, I just thought that was so interesting. So before we dive in, you know, we could talk about, and I hope we will talk about misinformation, global insecurity, emergent tech, and what all that has to do with marketing. But first, your journey has been so fascinating and rich. Will you share a bit about where you came from and how you landed here today? Yeah, and I think the reason I said that, and that was all the way back in 2010 with Seattle Magazine, is that, you know, I'd lived around the world, as that bio seems to hint at, 
And I've managed to see some of the world's best and worst things uh, as a war correspondent and somebody who's lived in Paris and New York and Montreal, et cetera. And what's, what appeals to me about Seattle is that it has both an incredible independent streak in terms of cooperatives or media, but it also has this amazing creativity. And it, I just found that at, at the point that in my life that I landed in Seattle, and I'm married to a Seattle native and our kids are fifth generation Pacific Northwesterners, that it just really jives very well with what I was looking for at the time and still am, that creativity and that independence. You know, somebody, I grew up, I was born in England, I grew up in Canada, I went to law school in Canada and in France, and I went to journalism school in New York, and I was always sort of driven to, to find things that were true to me as opposed to pursue a career. And so having done law and then go into journalism, my first job out of graduate school, even before I, was, I graduated, was at NBC News working for Tom Brokaw, who was the anchor at the time in New York, and then threatening to quit unless they gave me an horse. Yeah, I love that part of your story. So Hanson, you took a stand at this point in your career and you said, I will not work for you anymore unless you send me to, and where was that place? And why was that so important to you? You know, I, I, I always felt like I had to be challenged and be in a state of learning. And I think I was 26 or 27 at the time. And I felt like I'd done everything I wanted to do. I'd been in New York now for almost four years. And yeah, it's great to work at the top of the mountain, which is NBC Nightly News. But I really wanted to see the world. And I was young enough and, and, and sort of immodest enough to believe that that could happen. And so when I threatened to quit, I expected them to send me to London where I was born and I spoke French and I knew Europe. And I think it was maybe part of my hubris to decide to punish me and say, hey, have you thought about Israel? <laughs> and not punishment because <laughs> Israel is necessarily a bad place to go, but my last name is Hossein. And it would be very odd for me operating as an American journalist in the Jewish state of Israel with that baggage behind me. Mm -hmm. And so I asked to check it out. They sent me there for a month. I absolutely loved it. I got along with both sides and there, there I was. Yeah. And then how long were you there and then where did you go from there? Well, I was in Israel for three and a half years, and that's when I, uh, this time I threatened to quit and quit uh, at the end of that, and I got the Emmy Award, the Overseas Press Club Award for my work in Kosovo during the war there. And during that time, I'd been really learning that there was a different way to tell stories using digital technology. Blogging was just, it, was, it hadn't been invented yet, but we were able to start seeing the possibilities with digital technology. And NBC just wasn't interested. I asked, could I just spend a year roaming around the world on the cheap telling these stories? And they said no. And so I quit fairly unceremoniously, and I was offered jobs in Canada by both the national broadcasters. And even then I asked, can I learn how to shoot and edit my own stories? And that's what happened. And so you went and worked for CBC at that CBC, point? Yeah, I took the yeah. job. At C Basically, CBC said, hey, we'd like to have you as a national reporter, either in Montreal or Toronto, and then send you to Paris to be the national, international correspondent there. And I said, what else do you have? And they said, well, we have these entry-level <laughs> positions in, in rural Canada where we'll teach you how to shoot and edit your own stories and you're a one-man office, essentially. And I said, uh, so I chose the sunniest place I could find, which is Kelowna, British Columbia. Ah. And as close to Seattle for my wife as well. And so I went there and learned how to shoot and edit. I stunk. I was terrible for the first six months. Um, but I learned. And I learned by embarrassing myself on national television in Canada. And I got good enough at it. And as I was really settling into it, all of a sudden, out of the blue, one day, NBC News in New York calls and says, hey, war is coming in Iraq. Do you want to come back and work for us? Because the Pentagon is embedding journalists, but they can only do one or two people. And since you seem to know how to shoot and edit your own stories, which they didn't want to teach me, right. come do that. So I asked CBC, hey, can I take a sabbatical since you have a partnership with NBC? And they said, no. And I said, okay, I quit. So I was sort of on this roll of learning how to quit. <laughs> so I see a trend. <laughs> but I haven't quit in years. I've been at, this, I've been at the university for 13 years now. <laughs> 
Yeah, I get that. I will. So I'll tell you a very brief story that has always stuck with me. So out of undergraduate, so I would have been a paralegal in under for a lot of undergrad for immigration and and refugee lawyers mainly. And then I, I I'm a really fast typer because my dad I had to do translation for him. So I actually went to typing school when I was like twelve or thirteen. So. I graduated and I was working for this. It was just a, a horrible, it was like a translation service and they placed people. I don't know. It was, it was a mess. And the owner really liked three martini lunches. So, so that made things super exciting. And let's just say we didn't see eye to eye at one point. She was, she was trying to pump us up and she said, so, you know, we really, you know, I need everybody hustling. Da, 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 da. She went on and I said, you know, it's tough to get really motivated when the owner of the business is going to three martini lunches and playing hearts all afternoon. Needless to say, she did not love this comment. <laughs> so, well, it's so funny. I, I didn't realize that was your background. I have some of that myself. I, when I was in law school in Montreal, I actually did a, uh, I interned for a refugee oh, lawyer in Canada. I did a lot of that work representing people both in French and English. And that was really the extent of my legal career, but it was very gratifying. Yeah. I mean, it's such important work. And, and I always assumed I would be a lawyer. Everybody else did because I like words and, you know, I have a little argumentative streak. But that's why uh, that's, I like it. <laughs> yeah, but I ended up working for lawyers and realizing that probably wasn't my calling. But it, in this moment where this, I was, it was clear I was about to get fired or I was going to quit or something. Was we were, we were going to part ways, and I rung my dad, who at the time was down with his dad, my grandpa, in Santa Cruz, who had you know he had had his own electric company, and they wired UC Santa Cruz campus, among other things. But entrepreneur, my dad's an entrepreneur slash academic, and um, so I'm lamenting this to my dad, who I was call when I'm having you know, career stuff. And I hear my grandpa, who was very cantankerous always, and especially later in life. And he said, give me the phone, give me the phone. He said, so my maiden name is Adams. He gets on the phone and says, Erica, you're an Adams. You're smart. Quit. And then he hangs and he gives the phone back to my dad. And I was like, I don't know what just happened. And my dad's like, I don't either, but I think probably you should take his advice. And I said, oh, okay. Yeah, there's so, sometimes there's there's virtue in quitting as long as you know what you're doing. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that's a beautiful message. It's like it's not you know when a door you, when you close the door, another door is going to open, whether or not you close or somebody else. So I just, I just love that you're so transparent about like, and then I quit, and then I quit, and then I quit. Well, I actually gave a TED talk about a TEDx talk about that a few gonna... years, why I dropped the mic, right? Because I think uh, yes. you don't quit just out of a fit of rage or anything. No. I think for me, quitting is about re- remaining as true to my inner narrative as possible, which is sort of saying, okay, this story feels like it's done. And for me to stick around is like doing six more Star Wars sequels, which is just, you know, belaboring <laughs> the point and making it worse and worse. So what's it going to take for me to reboot the story, even though at the beginning of any story is always painful because you have to start from nothing. Yeah. Um, but I find that that's, that's the creative constraint that most motivates me to, to do cool stuff. Also, I think a lot of people struggle because when you, when you close door chapter ends, you grieve it. I mean, yes. that's human nature. And, yes. um, and, and sometimes that grieving period can actually take a long time. A really long time. And it's nonlinear, which for those of us who are both creative yet hyperlogical, the nonlinearity of it is just maddening. You know, I wrote on LinkedIn recently. So as we're recording this, we are both sheltered in place because of coronavirus. And I was writing about how I think a lot of what we're struggling with is grief. Um, and then there's been a lot written on that. But we don't see it that way or... or feel it that way. So I just think it's, it's important to note that grief is present in a lot of ways. And we just don't, don't we, we only associate it with death. 
you know, like yeah, you don't really know. Death. I don't think you really know you're the depths of that grief until it's over. And so that's probably why we don't quite recognize it as that. But you know, we've lost a lot of things, and we don't know what we truly lost until it's really done. Yeah. So out from there, I want to segue into one of the things on that post that came up for folks was they were grieving a lack of what they perceived to be as you know information that they could rely on. So, you know, sort of noting that we seem to be experiencing an uptick in misinformation. So I'm hoping you will share some of the really exciting and important, pertinent, relevant, so relevant now work um, that you're doing at the Center for an Informed Public. You just, gosh, was that, that wasn't even a week ago that you had the virtual summit surviving the coronavirus infodemic yeah, and uh, it was kind of, I mean, the, the Center for the Informed Public was launched at the University of Washington just late last year. It was a very almost like an emergency request for proposals from the Knight Foundation, which is based in Miami and is focused on the future of journalism. And they were looking to essentially create a new academic discipline around the impact of technology on democracy. And the University of Washington has some of the best, the world's best researchers on misinformation and disinformation. So they are actually invited to to apply for that grant. And then they invited me to support it because of my background in journalism and, and storytelling and everything else, which I did. And I saw my role as how do we actually engage the public if you want to have an informed public? Because they these these guys are really good at actually doing the research. But can we do this in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that we're doing, as they're researching, as they're trying to inoculate the public, we need to run these trials. And to me, the trials are engaging the public. And so I push very hard to do these town halls as soon as possible and do it in a way that you could actually give agency and accountability to the audiences that were, being, that were trying to inform themselves. And yeah, it's really important because we don't trust anything anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You said in the opening, uh, in your welcome to that, uh, Summit, you said, a lie can get halfway across the world before the truth can get its boots on. Yeah, well, I was I never, quoting somebody from you that. You were quoting somebody. I love that. And But it made me wonder, what is it about misinformation and lies that are so much more viral than the truth? Well, it, it, there's no doubt about it that we are addicted to misinformation. You got to look at information very much like food. In, misinformation is junk food. It's got a high sugar content and high carbs, and it's so easy to consume, and it's actually fun, and it hits our neural pathways in different ways. I mean, McDonald's, for example, you know, used to try to do a salad menu because they thought that's what everybody wanted based on the surveys. But in the end, that's not what people go to McDonald's for. So they don't serve salad, salads anymore. It's the same thing with information. Everybody says they want the truth. They want the facts. But you speak to the folks at Facebook book as I have, and they will tell you that uniformly, the links that get the most attention are the ones that are patently false. That's what people are attracted to. That's wackadoodle. Well, it's easy. I mean, and this is when you have demagogues giving you easy information. The problem is right now, and this is the, this is the transition and the evolution that I've lived for the last 25 years as a journalist and as a communications person, is that as the multiplicity of information sources have just sort of exponentially exploded on us, we are, you know, we're not living in an information vacuum. We're living in an in a, in a age of overabundance of information. We don't know how to choose. And that's the anxiety. And so we want simplicity because mm. otherwise we're just overwhelmed. <laughs> so to say... I experienced this firsthand, and this is not a story that I'm proud of, but so my sister works at Stanford. She's a geneticist by training. She's a science writer. She's wicked smart. And so it was the Monday, the Monday that they announced shelter in place, I think earlier in the day, or maybe it was the day before. Anyway, immediately prior to this, this 
text exchange, which I will share about. I'm not like a super emotional person by nature. I'm not a crier by nature. And I had a total meltdown in the aisle at QFC because I was so overwhelmed with everything. And I sort of had to leave the cart and come home and try again. So I was not in my best mental state, let's just say. And I get this text from a friend whose husband is a physician's assistant in an ER. So I feel like this is a reputable source. You might have seen this. It was basically this, you know, text from somebody saying, you know, I work close to the CDC. This is going to get worse before it gets better. By the way, we probably knew about this. And it probably comes from, you know, cows, bovine. Okay. So I sent this text to my family. My sister's like, basically, I'll paraphrase. She was like, oh, good Lord, Erica, get it together. <laughs> She's like, and I was like, but the, but the flu, the flu virus, and that came from birds. And she was like, yeah, that's, that's not this, Erica. You got to know. <laughs> and so, you know, retrospect, I'm like embarrassed that I felt prey to it. But in the moment, it felt very like that made sense to me in my amped up and anxious brain. Yeah, when you're in a state of fear and anxiety, we're more susceptible to these things. And this is why we're seeing this rise of, of, of demagogues uh, as leaders around the world, because they provide easy answers when everything else is just so confusing. Yeah. Uh, and, and they address the fear by actually perpetuating the fear. So that's, that is the fundamental challenge we all face, is that we have to get past the fear, we have to get past the disinformation, we have to sort of say, how are we going to collaborate at scale and trust each other again to overcome these massive problems? And in, in a way, there's almost a divine retribution to what the virus has brought to us, because mm. it's, it's, it's been an equal punisher. And it's basically saying, you shall not have sports, you shall not have entertainment, you shall not leave your house, you shall not go to a bar, you shall stay home and think very hard about how you want to support your fellow human, because you're not going to get out of this otherwise. Yeah. I, I mean, I see, I see the take of it being the great equalizer. You know, the, the data is also saying that it definitely is disproportionately impacting communities of color and already marginalized communities. So I think we're seeing it as an amplification of some of those trends, but your point still stands, which is, you know, we're all feeling it and we're all kind of being, it's, it is a reckoning um, for yeah, sure. We're not going to get past it. Yeah, of course the impact is felt disproportionately, but we don't get past this unless we come together to figure it out together. Yeah. There's no way. Yeah. Yeah. This is a little bit of a sidebar, but you just went through what a lot of folks are going through, which is you had envisioned those town halls being in person. And then you had to shift gears to it being virtual. Last week, I gave my first virtual keynote. And that was a really different experience than giving it in person for sure. And But part of it was just the mind shift from like, I will not be in person, I'll be online. I was just curious how you experienced that. Yeah, it, it, you know, I think the challenge was that I didn't have the visual and physical cues. And that's what I'm really good at is picking up energy in an audience and the speakers, right? But at the same time, I'd been thinking about this for a while. Even when we, we looked at the ideas of Town Hall last year, I said, there's no way this could be 45 minutes of sage on the stage and then 15 minutes of random Q&A where people with loud voices dominate. That's just not useful. Yeah, And so luckily, I found this new platform out of British Columbia called Thought Exchange that allowed us to actually really crowdsource the thoughts and questions of the audience in a way that they could vote things up. And then we would get that into the program. So when we designed this, even before we had to go virtual, my thought had always been, we only hear from these experts for the first 10 or 15 minutes to frame their credibility and the question, and then we go straight to Q&A. And I feel that that's what really resonated. We had over 2,000 huh. people participate on this statewide summit. I know. Congratulations. And, and, the, and, the, and the participation was coming fast and freer. So I was getting yeah, it. Yeah. My students were helping to curate those questions. But I felt it was highly participative, despite the fact that nobody was in the room with me. 
Yeah, that tool looked really incredible. What was the platform again? It's called Thought Exchange. It's okay. one word, thoughtexchange.com. I'm originally from Vancouver, Canada, so I do confess the price similar to you. Anytime I hear about something good coming out of Canada, it makes me proud. Well, I grew, up in, I grew up in Canada, and I this know. is actually out of southern British Columbia. It's uh, southeastern British Columbia near Nelson, and, um, but they're being funded largely by VC in Seattle, so that's how I was connected to them in the first place. Very cool. Yeah. I'm going to shift gears just a, just a titch. So this podcast and its listeners obviously are interested in marketing for good, and we're coming at it from all different angles, as this conversation has already shown. So when I think about what does marketing mean, it to me is when you there's an exchange of information, ideas, goods, services, whatever, and that can happen one-on-one or at scale. And importantly, that exchange is mutually beneficial to all involved, right? So everybody should be made whole, whole but through that. So it's easy, I think, to think about technology and how it can fuel misinformation at scale. But something that I feel like we haven't been focusing on as much in the past sort of four to six weeks because of coronavirus is that the the way in which technology can shape perceptions, because a lot of marketing happens within frameworks that are very well established within our brains and, and they, you know, they, they shape perception. So I would just love to hear your thoughts on how technology, including emergent technology, can help shape perception at scale? Oh boy. That's a tough one because, you know, even as I helped pioneer this master's program in digital media before anybody really understood what social media was, we recognize that technology should not be the, the tail wagging the dog. And that what we've pivoted on with the graduate program is very much that we're essentially looking at human forces that are amplified by technology, but you never start with technology as a solution or as the the thing. It cannot be that. But there's, there's no doubt about it that as we move into the next chapter of technology, which is ambient technology, artificial intelligence, internet of things, that just profoundly disrupts everything where the technology is the driver. And it totally rewires how we connect and engage with each other and with ourselves. And so, you know, this is going well beyond Facebook and and Twitter and social media and everything else, more into behavioral change, which, you know, marketing does deal with. Behavioral change has fundamentally been about telling stories, whether it's been an advertising campaign or a film, right? It's basically saying, hey, I can envisage some kind of transition in my life's journey if I do this or I buy this product or I vote for this person. And you tell that story and then it's done. However, when you're dealing with a data ocean and then that data is being manipulated by an algorithm to incentivize people's actions and it knows you better than you know yourself, then we have a different situation where behavioral change is no longer about telling stories and human incentivization. And it's more about, well, we can actually get real-time understanding of how you are moving and changing and we're going to incentivize you based on that data. So for example, if you have a smartwatch on and you go to your fridge and you're about to take that thing out of the fridge and your calorie count goes up and it's going to affect your insurance premium and say, that will disincentivize you from consuming that thing. And so suddenly it's the numbers and the algorithm that are determining what you do as opposed to the stories that motivated you before. And that is profound. And at least to me, kind of wonderful and scary all at the same time. Well, if you look at it, even from the point of view of what we're facing right now with the virus, you know, and they're looking like, okay, we now know that we have to get back to work. We have to be able to survive. And, and, and somehow we have to put this virus behind us. But the only way we can do that, we have to know who's sick, who's had it, who hasn't, and where they are, and how do we quarantine them. 
oh, all of a sudden we have, an, we have a solution. Let's use our smartphones and artificial intelligence to track everybody and put them in their place and keep track of that. And that's scary um, because you can think about the implications yeah. where this yeah. all goes, right? Yeah. Well, I think it'll be really interesting to see. I mean, certainly something that's happened because of the quarantine being sheltered in place. And that's, you know, Americans really pride themselves on independence. And you certainly saw that flare up in terms of people not wanting to give up their independence in service of the greater good. And I, you know, I'm just really interested to see what the legacy will be in, in many regards, but including in that regard. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. You know, I have you and I both being relatively binational. One of the things I love most about America is that focus on independence. It's mm-hmm. pursuit of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, right? And, Amer- and Canada is built on peace, order, and good government, yes. which is very much the human welfare thing. But, you know, if we continue to face these crises and if these technologies continue to really sort of hurt us, according to our data, does America and its constitutional origins and culture get rewired fundamentally. I believe that America was driven by a particular technology, the printing press, which allowed for different voices and, and independence to sort of shine through against the monolithic monarchies in, in Europe at the time. So the printing press shaped America for the last 250, 260 years. It's not the printing press anymore. It's not even the internet. It's really the artificial intelligence. And how does that make us think and do differently? Where does our freedom go? Yeah, where does our freedom go? So we talked a little bit, of, a bit about grief, and then you were just saying that with algorithms, you know, the, it in some ways is the demise of storytelling, yet what we know is that our brains are, are wired for story. And so are we going to rewire our brains? Like, are stories going to die, Hanson? Well, it's a good question because, you know, who cares if our brains are wired for stories if, if the algorithm is telling us what door we can go through and which one we can't? And that's what you're beginning to see in China where you get access to certain things based on their social credit system and you don't get access. Whether And so will stories matter if, uh, if human incentivization and free will don't matter as much because we are just locked off from those different services. I mean, that's obviously we're talking a few years down the line, but I believe the virus will precipitate asking those questions sooner than later. Mm-hmm. I hope that stories don't go. I mean, they're, they're mildly entertaining, obviously, and we're all binging on these, these streaming platforms. Yeah. And it may just be that entertainment. But stories are really what, uh, that's what sets us apart from any other species. And if we don't have that, because it also gives us our sense of identity and our yes, sense of purpose. Yeah. If that goes away, then we're really messed up as a species. Yeah. I'll just say that in anticipation of the new Top Gun coming out last night, my husband and I did watch the original Top Gun. (laughs) And I was sitting there thinking, like, this is just good storytelling. I mean, there isn't anything super remarkable about it. But 34 years later, it's still a good story. I know exactly how that story goes. And I was still like, I'm going to watch this, you know. There's well, something that was, about well, it. I mean, but yeah, but again, those are stories. I mean, those stories at most maybe might just be our bedtime stories where yes. it's no longer yeah. stories for marketing or anything else. Or at best, they just continue to tell, give us our sense of selves and purpose and who we are, but we may not have as much yeah. for our, 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 our fates. Yeah. So you wrote a book, Storyteller Uprising, Trust and Persuasion in the Digital Age. It's totally and, outdated. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and yet... In it, so you described uprising as meaning people seizing control of communication by building ongoing credible connections through story and digital technology. Would you still describe it in the same way? Well, uh, yeah, although I'm wondering, I think since then, that was all done right before the height of 
the apex of the goodness of this, which was the Arab Spring, when you saw populations essentially pushing back against monolithic structures. And this, this, all, it, it, I mean, it was all inspired by my Declaration of Independence against NBC. Like, I realized that I didn't have to rely on this voice of God anymore to be able to reach people with stories that mattered to me. Yeah. And so when I brought that ethos to the University of Washington, I said, you know what, every organization can actually tell their own stories without having to rely on broadcasters. And so that actually happened. Amazon and Starbucks and all these companies now have internal newsrooms and it's come to be. Um, so that's great. And that was the independence and freedom I was looking for. But what it's also happened is that it's created a, a, a complete fragmentation of the information ecosystem. And B, because of that fragmentation, what we're looking for is clarity. And so we're willing to surrender all of our power to essentially the big five companies, as they call them, uh, mm-hmm. in the United States. And, they're, and it's become this massive oligopoly of information and technology, which is extremely dangerous. They have more power than states do. Yeah. Yeah. So you've heard me talk a little bit about my affection for the second law of thermodynamics. Do you remember this? Yes, I have heard you say <laughs> something along those lines because your dad's a physicist. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, engineer, phys- I don't know what all, I don't even blend together. But, uh, you know, with the idea being that chaos is always increasing and chaos can be productive, right? It is disruptive, but sometimes it can be productive. My stance is from a marketing and, and communications perspective, most of the time, clarity is going to serve you better than chaos. So the work is to bring clarity rather than perpetuate chaos. And we can't, chaos is always increasing the second law of thermodynamics. It's a universal law. So we can't stop it. That whole like stop the chaos isn't possible, but we can quell it. And I guess I'm, I'm curious in a time when it, it, it's at least true to say how we relate to story shifting what does that mean? And if algorithms are taking over, what does that mean? Like, how can people think about bringing clarity? Yeah, because the, the knee-jerk reaction right now in terms of the chaos is to sort of say, let's throw whatever Band-Aid is readily available to us, which means, oh, that algorithm from Facebook is going to quell hate speech and give me as much information as I need. Go for it. I won't even look at what I'm surrendering. And, and they've got more power because of that. That can't be the solution. The other way of looking at it is how can we actually come up with new narratives, new meta-narratives about who we are as communities, as societies, that service that aren't irrelevant. Uh, and, and, and you could say that what we've experienced even in the last five or six years in terms of the amount of disruption that there has been to traditional institutions like government and like media is to say that the reason why we can attack those entities is because they were weakened because we don't trust them anymore. And so what do we have to do to renegotiate our connection to each other, our social contract? Well, we have to rethink what our social infrastructure is going to be, how we connect. And to do that, we need new stories. And those stories could be new stories about nation states, communities, religions. Those are all stories we tell ourselves to understand who we are and how we can collaborate at scale. And so if we think about the role of the marketer or the storyteller, I can't think of any more important charge at this time than to start imagining those new stories and understanding that it has to be relevant to the times and can't be looking back 20 or 30 years when we thought that that was the truth. It's not the truth anymore. We have to take into account these new realities. What do you think is still the truth? What truths will sustain through this? The the fundamental truth is that we cannot act by ourselves. We, we do not exist in a vacuum. And the problems that we face, whether it's as a country, a community, or as a species, are so massive that if we cannot trust each other enough to figure that out together, then we are doomed. 
And so even when I think about the conversation around diversity and inclusion, which mm -hmm. gets rejected by certain people because of just trying to do good for and, and, and whatever else, I think if you don't have all the brains at the table to try to figure these things out, we're doing ourselves a disservice. And so what's it going to take for us to say, you know what, here's the new terms of engagement for us. And this is why we're doing it. And this is what motivates us. And this is why it matters in the big picture. Let's get together and do this. And that's, that's what matters most. Yeah, it feels like being very settled on values is more important than ever. Like, we went through a time where you kind of always have them, but maybe we didn't name them as much, you know. Um, and that just feels so important to call out explicitly these days and not take them for granted so that you can, you know, build trust communities and connection in that way. Well, the, the challenge with values is that it becomes a very subjective thing. And unless you can come up with a, a storyline that inspires people to adopt those values in common, then you're in trouble. And so the other outcome I see happening, which sounds very science fiction, and I'm calling it, I'm patenting this or copywriting, I'm calling it a future of, of, of platforms and enclaves. Essentially, we're moving away from this, this, these mass uh, ways of coming together, whether it's a nation state or a corporation or a church even, to something that's much more specific to both where we live geographically and what our values are, say around abortion or gun rights, uh -huh. and and the and the platforms that we choose to support us. That we don't necessarily need a state or a country providing healthcare when Amazon does. And so all of a sudden, if you're living in part of the Pacific Northwest in this community where you have certain values that matter to you as a community, and you don't want to associate with anybody else who doesn't have that values, and you don't need a federal body to support you because you've got a, you've chosen Amazon or Facebook as your as your reputation system plus your service provider then you have a system of platforms and enclaves. It's like a 21st century feudalism. But we're collaborating at scale within that platform or enclave. Yeah, I mean, the at scale part makes me wonder on the other side of this, how much more fiercely we will crave human connection. Well, it depends on how much connection we need, right? If you say, I'm just quite happy with my little village of 100 people and we all agree X, Y, and Z, and we all agree that we don't want anybody who doesn't agree with that X, Y, and Z, and we will connect either in person or we'll use this particular platform to continue to talk to each other. And we have a rating system so that you can you have reputation and we'll take you seriously. That may be enough. And, and those, those technologies are so powerful um, that, that the, the scale comes from that. It doesn't necessarily come from millions of people doing something. It comes from 30 people all agreeing on something. Yeah. You know, what strikes me in listening to you is how much we talk about um, needing to filter out information, you know, that we're bombarded and we need to, you know, kind of filter. And I, I believe that to be true. However, I think the downside of, I, we're all very good at reinforcing our own preconceived notions about the world and, and our opinions. And, you know, our, our brains naturally are wired to go and just reinforce those opinions. And so what would you offer to listeners as a way to kind of balance that out? Like definitely you don't want to overwhelm yourself more than you need to be overwhelmed because that leads to anxiety and that it leads to reptile brain and that's just not good. So, I mean, if you're willing to say, how do you balance those things? You're such a balanced thinker and observer. Uh, I actually don't have that much optimism about it. I think it's too hard to do because it actually requires a journalist's mind, which means you don't accept a source at face value, you double source and you're skeptical from the beginning and then you try to, it's a lot of work, right? That's probably the work of a scientist as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's just too hard to do. And, and this is one of the reasons why 
maybe the height of trust in the United States could have been in the 1950s and 60s when we trusted our media and political institutions. And there were very, very few of them. They weren't necessarily right, but at least they told us what to think and do, and mm-hmm. we generally agreed with it. And so I am not confident that we're going to get past this very easily because for us to sort of say, okay, I'm a, I'm a Republican. I have to start making friends with Democrats, even though I don't like them. That's hard. Yeah, it's hard. And so my solution has been in jest until well, even last year when I was giving talks. My, my solution was the only thing that's going to solve this is an alien invasion because the alien is so ex, such an external threat that we have to put aside our differences to come together. Otherwise, we're not going to get past this. And in a way, that has happened. The virus mm-hmm. is an alien yeah. invasion. It is in a lot of ways. Yeah. Okay. I remain more optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a jaded journalist oh, by no, training. I'm not jaded. I, I, and I, I, I just, <laughs> you, you can see the facts right now. People are fragmented to the nth degree. And, and they're looking, basically they're saying, hey, Facebook and Twitter fix this for us. You know, give us sources that we wouldn't normally want to see and try to push us in front of us because we can't do it on our own. I do not believe we can do it on our own for the most part. I don't believe it because it's too easy to engage in confirmation bias. Too easy. Yeah. It's all there. For I mean, us. it's it's all there. Yeah. I mean, even if you're aware of it, it's so hard not to do it. It's definitely hard not to do it. So you are an award-winning filmmaker, and I'm just going to call you a video guru, even though instantly you're going to be like, oh, I'm not. But you know so much more about that medium and have thought about it so much more and used it so much more. I'm just curious. Let's assume that that it doesn't go away and that storytelling stays with us in some form or fashion. What I notice is, you know, a lot of listeners will be will work for nonprofits or foundations or B Corps or, you know, they're folks that are on a mission to make the world a better place for sure. And they have such rich stories to tell, and yet it doesn't feel like they're told as often or in a way that may be as compelling. If you were in their shoes, what would you be doing to get your story told? Well, I would say that the bar is very high in terms of you have to really justify to yourself that it's worth making that kind of investment of time and resources to use video. Do you think the video has to be high production video to be effective? No, it just has to be a really phenomenal story. It has to be really compelling content. It doesn't, I'm not saying it's got to be like a really racy Game of Thrones thing, but it has to get us to pay attention and make us think differently than we normally would do. And there's so much expected tropes right now in storytelling. And now you see it on Netflix and Amazon Prime now. They've got so, they're throwing so much money at these productions, and the storytelling is generally mediocre. Mm-hmm. It's very predictable, but they're sort of expanding it over a series because they know people are addicted to it. And it's terrible. Well, predictability also is solace. It's it's I mean, solid, it's comfort, it's, right? It's, but it's not raising the bar at all. But but if you think about it from the point of view, that's what. But that's what nonprofits are competing with, right? If somebody, if a nonprofit's putting out a video and somebody mm-hmm. has a choice between that and watching the next Netflix thing, no matter how mediocre it is, they're going to choose Netflix because it's like fast food again. Yeah. And so even even when we were looking at doing this this summit the the, the last week on the coronavirus and infodemic, I knew that we had to think very differently, not only in terms of how we marketed it but also how we engage. And so I made it very clear to our experts that we're not going to get more than six minutes of speaking before we went to the Q&A and that I would keep it very fast paced. Mm -hmm. Uh, I knew that we wanted to keep people and we wanted to hook them with as much actionable stuff as possible. And what we found is that the stuff that really resonated for us, even as we were doing it and resonated with our audience with the the stories that the speakers told, not the research, but the anecdotes, right? And so I think that's what you have to think about. First of all, what is it you, what action do you truly want your constituents or stakeholders to take? 
what is the astounding, surprising, amazing thing you can tell them they don't already know that's going to make them want to stick around? And can you do it in a way that looks compelling enough, not necessarily from a production values point of view, but to show that you actually mean it uh, when you put it out there to do it? And I think it's, it's entirely possible. And I, want to, I actually want to rephrase my pessimism that you, you observed in the last <laughs> answer is that when, whenever I tell stories or communicate, what I try not to do, yes, you can be provocative, but I also recognize that people increasingly find any communication they engage with, does it threaten their sense of identity? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So like even climate change, you start, you start with that word climate change, you've automatically disenfranchised maybe 30% of America because they, they believe that climate change forces them to not be a conservative anymore. And you don't want to do that you know, as much as you'd right. like them to uh, embrace it. And so you have to think about, well, is there a different way for me to phrase this that invites them into the tent, doesn't attack who they think they are, and then gets us all to think and talk and engage differently? Yeah. Uh, and I think you were making a point about like, w- what action do you really want people to take? You know, and I'm working with, with clients and when I teach, I'm always saying what, who, how, what, who, how, what, who, how, which means what does success really look like? who's your target audience or who needs to be involved? And then how are you going to engage with them? And so often we go right to the how, right? And so... Yeah, and I think you might recall I, was, I, I, I responded very belligerently in your class. Oh, I had blocked somebody, that out. Uh, and I, couldn't, I can't stand the target audience uh, message question. That's very 20th century. I think, I mean, if we're competing with but all But if you're inviting people into a tent, don't you need to be no. thinking through who you're inviting into the tent? No, I, well, I think you, it's maybe semantics to you, but I think you have to ask it very differently. Target audience makes it sound like I'm trying to hit them with something so they can buy something. <laughs> I, I, the, my, my question, <laughs> how do I... Rather, Let's say who, do, needs to, who, who wants to be involved? Yeah, exactly. Well, okay. basically, no, no, even better. <laughs> even better. How do I serve these people? What do they need most? What is what is their anxiety? What will what will make their lives better? Okay, how can Hanson, I serve if you go right to the how, I love that. Let me just say, I love your reframe of like, how can I be in service to these people? You still have to, I think, say, who are these people? Yeah, of course. But target audience and just ending with that question just tells me I want to sell them. We're not ending. How was the ending? Were you not paying attention? What does success look like? Who do we need to involve? How are we going to involve them? What I know, but I still don't like the word target okay. audience because it still is, that is where, I most, switched. Marketers, that's I where switched. most marketers I let end. it go. I let it go to who, who might want to be involved. Okay. <laughs> but but, but what I don't, I, but, but you have to understand <laughs> that we are in the state of anxiety. It's not just with the virus. We're in the state of, my God, what is this world coming to? We are. We need to we bring are. that down somehow. Yeah. Dial it back. And not just like, oh, this is the mission statement of my nonprofit, and we're here to solve X, Y, and Z and make the world a better place. I find that platitude and boring and, and not useful. Yeah. Well, the other thing about at least nonprofit mission statements based on research I've done is that 50% of them are technically incomprehensible. Absolutely. Like, really? So that's a whole separate Oh, I hate, I hate the mission statement activity. <laughs> okay. Next time we, next time we'll chat, we'll talk about that. I want to make sure I respect your time and I have... Three final questions. So one of the things that I figured out recently, because, you know, I'm always looking at the etymology of words, is that motivation is about action, but inspiration, actually, the root of it means to breathe in. And so you need enough breath to take action. You need enough inspiration to stay motivated. So will you share what continues to inspire you and also what keeps you motivated? Yeah, that's beautiful. I think, uh, and I think it actually speaks to the information flow we face as well as before you share, before you intake anything, take a breath, mm. you know, and calm your system. And that's, that's a nice way of saying it. Um, 
what inspires me is, is, is exactly what I've been saying is that I, I'm trying to get past this immediate crisis and think about what are the new structures we're going to need as a species or a society to collaborate? And can we start thinking about that now? And what are the stories that we have to tell to inspire people to build those things? And getting past the things that we've hung on to for decades or hundreds of years is thinking that's the truth. We have a new truth and we need to figure out ways to trust each other in different ways moving forward. And that's what inspires me most. What keeps you motivated? Um, what keeps me motivated is that um, I, have, I brought children into this world when things seem to be fairly good. <laughs> yeah, right. And now they're not. Um, and so I would like to make sure that they've got something that they can hang on to that makes their lives better and, that, and the people around me and that they find inspiration in that as well. And they look to help each other out. Yeah, I love that. Well, you 100% inspire me. And I, of course, think you're amazing. I love your work. I love how you think so differently about things and invite others into thinking differently. Um, if people want to find out more about you, where should they go? Oh, I make it very hard to find me, but just... <laughs> I know. We share that in common, by the way. We share that in common. But I'll put all the everything in the really show notes. wants me, they got to hard, work hard to do it. Um, <laughs> HRHmedia.com is my website, and uh, they can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter, and we can figure it out along the way. I love how your tone of voice totally shifts. I don't know. You can just sort of do the thing and then you'll like find me. <laughs> I don't actively seek business or people. I mean, everything I like jobs from NBC to University of Washington, my clients, they tend to fall into my lap. And that sounds very arrogant, but I feel like it's almost like it has to be that organic thing. I cannot actively seek these things out because it doesn't work out for it me. It doesn't sound way. arrogant, Hanson. It sounds like you are somebody who is so true to who you are. You stay in your zone of genius and people are attracted to you for that. And that's a gift. It's amazing. Well, thanks for being so charitable to my eccentricities. It's true. Well, at least it's my, it's my version of what's true about you. So thank you for taking the time, Hanson. I really do appreciate it. Erica, thanks for such a provocative conversation. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Marketing for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, subscribe, review, and share on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about Claxon University, how to make more impact in and for your organization, or hiring me to speak or coach, go to klaxonmarketing.com or reach out at info at klaxonmarketing.com. Again, thanks for listening, and thanks for making our world a better place.